0: He was uh, my professor of New Testament and Greek at North Greenville University, uh, where he continues serving the Lord there. He's an elder at Christ Fellowship Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. He is married to Amber, and they have two ch- two children, Trace and Hallie, uh, but I'm just happy to call him my friend. I need to tell you a story, and that story uh, goes like this. Uh, while I was in college, and he was my professor, we had at least... 50% of my classmates convinced that he was my dad. And in class, I would just call him Dr. Mathis. And they always said, like, you guys just keep that, you, you guys keep that professional distance thing up really well. Like, you, you never call him dad. And I said, well, that's because he's not. <laughs> but, uh, but I would claim him, and I hope he would claim me. Um, I had my very first class of my very first semester of college with Dr. Mathis. And it was a class at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday. Wednesday was the first day that our semester began in the fall of 2008. And I remember going into that class, and it was a class tailored toward uh, those who were considering uh, going into the ministry. I went into that class with a lot of angst, went into that class with a lot of questions. And the Lord used a book that he assigned. I went home after Thanksgiving that year. And on my little limited broke college student budget, I bought every member of my family that book for Christmas because it had been so powerful to me. But I remember we had to write a paper. We had to write a paper detailing why we sensed that the Lord was calling us into ministry. And on that paper, I was wrestling with all of this angst and all of this um, these questions about should I continue or should I bail out and dig ditches or sell insurance or whatever else and And through that process, the Lord so confirmed that that I should continue this way through his comments that are written in the margins that I still have that paper and every now and then refer back to it. That is probably one of the larger reasons why I am before you here today. So I say all that to say, if you have any problems with me, you know who to blame. (laughs) But it is my great privilege to welcome my friend and mentor, Dr. Donnie Mathis. Please come and, and share God's word
1: with us. Uh, thanks, Greg. Um, it's kind of hard to preach after hearing that. I, 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 it is um, amazing how God uses little things like uh, an assignment um, to, to write a paper usually that people complain about. Um, and sometimes, like, I don't know how to write this paper. I don't know if I'm called to ministry. And honestly, those are usually the best papers. Um, but to hear, again, uh, about the book that you read, uh, still using that book, I think, uh, in class, in that class, and to hear that that assignment made a difference is very humbling. And, um, Encouraging, And to be honest, to be here with you today is an exceedingly high honor. Um, to see the way that God has worked in, in Greg's life over these last years, and, I, and I'm definitely not old enough to be his dad. Um, uh, pretty, my wife is definitely not old enough to be his mom. Um, <laughs> And, and 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 to be honest, uh, his uh, he is a bit of an old soul as well. So, um, yeah, it that was pretty funny, I will say, with his friends. They. Um, <laughs> but to be here to see the the work that God has continued to do in Greg's life and the work that he's doing here in Trenton Baptist Church is. Um. Is. Just a joy, Um, particularly given uh, the fact that my my dad grew up just a few miles from here. This place, this area of the world is very dear uh, to me, even though I haven't lived in roughly this area in a long time. So it is uh, just a great joy to be here. Uh, This morning, If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and we're going to begin uh, reading in, in verse 14. So our text this morning is right on the heels of several significant moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, at the end of chapter 3, between the baptism, well, b- b- you have the genealogy that Luke places between the baptism of Jesus. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, we're told that Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. And Jesus goes through this temptation and in every way, as you if you think about this in terms of, Uh, Jesus walking the path of Israel everywhere that Israel failed in the journey out of the Exodus, Jesus succeeds. He is established as the king who will stand in the place of his people. He is the true Israelite, the one that God had promised Abraham. And so we come to verse 14 here. I'm going to read this. This is in the Christian Standard Bible. Um, So let's read it together. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. We see this emphasis throughout these first four chapters and really all the way through Luke on the work of the Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news spread about Him throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, or is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind." to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote the proverb to me, Doctor, heal yourself what we've heard that took place in Capernaum. Do here in your hometown also. He also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to already hear from your word and the scriptures that have been read and the songs that have been sung that point us to your deep love for us when we were rebels and, and ill-deserving of your grace and your love and your mercy, you sent your only Son so that, that we could know the treasure of your grace and the treasure of your presence in our lives. And we have indeed heard the joyful sound that Jesus saves. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we continue hearing from your word, that you would would cause us to be brought into your presence, that your spirit would be at work in our midst, that you would draw us to your throne, and that we would be enthralled by the glory of our great God. That we would see you for who you are as you've revealed yourself in Jesus. That we would recognize that you are our only hope and that you are our King. That the triune God is the one to whom our ultimate loyalty in every area of life should be given. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to be able to see where we have erred in our thinking in the past, where we've erred in our actions, and that we would repent, that we would would turn away from that sin, that we would do the actions that would be in keeping with that repentance and that we would be all of us different when we walk out the doors of this building this morning. We beg for this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this morning, as we look at this text, I think it would be really helpful for us if, if you're old enough like me to, to remember what it is like, like. It was delivered at my parents' house this morning. Uh, a Sunday morning copy of a newspaper that, that has that smell and that feel and maybe you get a little ink on your fingers and you open it up on the front page to see all of the, the great news or maybe the bad news that they want to convey to us. Because I think that's really what was going on here in Nazareth. There have been a lot of things that have been said about Jesus. And on the, the, the next day, the, the Sunday after the Sabbath and the Sunday edition of what we'll call the Nazareth New Era, that they would have been talking about and writing about what it was that Jesus said and did while He was there in His own hometown. And what we're going to get here, Luke does for us, is that he boils down in one place the kingdom message that Jesus preached as he was moving from town to town in Galilee during his earthly ministry. And in our passage today, it would be really kind of, if you want to envision it in this fashion, Jesus is kind of like the politician who returns to their small, maybe run-down, hard-working hometown, even if they've left that place a long time before for bigger and better things, to set forward their agenda for the term which they were asking you to elect them. It would be like, for instance, you know, this morning I, I was, my dad is from this area and he was giving me the, the directions for how to get here because he didn't really trust that the GPS knew what it was talking about. And, and honestly, I'll be, I, I listened to the GPS and went on the small road that he didn't want me to. But the, the thing that, that, that he could tell me was you, you, you go down here and you turn right at the pink elephant, which seems strange. I will admit, but that's the kind of knowledge of this region that Jesus had. This is where he's from. So this is the perfect place for him to go and to set forward his agenda on his terms for describing how the kingdom of God was going to come. Now, I recognize that it's really difficult for us to compare Jesus to a politician making a stump speech, because let's just be honest, politicians, whether elephants or donkeys, don't always, well, what they say doesn't always match what they do. But in Jesus' Jewish world, any claims about God and about God's kingdom were not just describing this inner spiritual thing that we so often equate being a part of God's family with. But they were also articulating how the one true and living God was going to fix a broken world. And how along with fixing this broken world in general, He was going to put Israel at the center of it and that before Israel, every nation would bow. So in our passage... Excuse me, Jesus is exhorting his listeners to get with God's program and off of their own. It's kind of like what would happen when I was a child and I would be uh, dawdling around or not really doing anything or walking aimlessly, and my mom would say, Get with the program. That's what Jesus is doing here, and a lot of times we don't like it when somebody tells us to get with the program. So what does Luke set before us as Jesus' agenda to change Israel and the world? And how does Luke show that Jesus dared to tell his contemporaries something that was really hard to hear? And if we're honest, it's sometimes something that we don't really want to hear. So our first headline, maybe at the top of the page across the whole border, is, Hometown Boy Makes Some Noise. Look at what we see there as Luke summarizes what was going on in Galilee to lead into our time here in Nazareth. We're going to see that it was characterized by two things, power and popularity. So then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So notice this work of the Spirit. Not only did the Spirit lead him into temptation where he succeeded in every way that Israel failed, the Spirit leads him into Galilee to begin this ministry of declaring the arrival of the kingdom of God. So there's power. There's power in his words. He is speaking as a prophet of God. Not like, you know, these folks that might call themselves prophets as I was listening on the way here this morning from 1 Kings how how King Ahab had like 400 prophets that would tell him whatever they wanted to hear. You can have the title of a prophet given to you by a king but that doesn't mean you're a prophet at all. What matters is, is God speaking. There are a lot of folks that could have claimed to be a prophet along the way in the last 400 years since the end of the writing of the Old Testament. And we've seen John the Baptist already. He was one that was speaking from the Spirit of God. But now we have one that was even greater, who's speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying some very strange and exciting things. And news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. And then verse 15, (coughs) Luke says, He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. The powerful words of this prophet were making everyone excited, and this brought popularity. Well, at least... For now now the interesting thing about this passage, when you look at it in comparison to the ordering of the stories, this story is in a shortened form in Matthew and Mark, is that in Matthew and Mark they push this a bit later in their stories. It's, it's a good reminder to us that they're ordering these things not necessarily in chronological order, but in a, in a topical sequencing, like Luke tells us in verse 4 of chapter 1 that he's put this into an orderly sequence. Fashion, in an orderly sequence to, to make a point about who Jesus is. But what Luke's done is he's moved it to the beginning, and here's the amazing thing. What he's doing is he's trying in bringing it to the front to emphasize more than anything the preaching of Jesus and the power of his preaching. And we're going to put off the power of the miracle working until a little bit later. He wants his readers to recognize that Jesus' power is seen not first and foremost in the cool miracles that he does, like we're going to see in the pages that follow how he's going to, to heal the lame man, how he's going to cast out demons, how he's going to do all kinds of amazing, unbelievable, miraculous things. What he's focusing in on is the fact that Jesus was a preaching prophet of God and that's where his power is most clearly seen the miracles only confirm the most important thing and that is how he's declaring and bringing into being the kingdom of God now as we think about this and we think about the audiences of this book it's really important to to sort of sift through that for just one second Now, I have these glasses on this morning, and because of my vanity, you can't see that there is a place in these glasses where it goes from making me able to see y'all in the back, so I can tell if you fall asleep. And if I look down out of the bottom, I can see my notes. If I didn't have that part on the bottom, we'd have some trouble this morning. And that's sort of what I want you to think about as we look through and sift through this passage. On the one hand, you've got the audience of Jesus. The people that were there when Jesus came to his hometown. These Jews who have a lot of preconceptions about how it is that God's going to work. And then we've got a little bit of a different audience as well. And that's the audience of Luke's gospel. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 1, he says that he's writing this to someone whose name is Most Excellent Theophilus. And Most Excellent Theophilus is not a Jew from Galilee. He's a Gentile. Probably someone of wealth, probably someone of privilege, probably someone of status. That's how you get the title, Most Excellent and he may have even paid for Luke's work in writing this to get it published and out there. We don't know, but we do know that he's not somebody from Nazareth. So Luke has taken this message that Jesus has given to these specific folks in Nazareth, the hometown, but also he's taken this and shaped it because what Jesus says to the folks in Nazareth is also really important to the folks in wherever it is Theophilus lived in the Roman Empire, and there's a message for both. It may just not be exactly the same. So we need to try to think through what is it that he's saying to Jesus is saying, and what is it that Luke's saying, and how do these come together to confront us on both sides? So the second headline that you might see is the prophet's platform is profound. We think about this in, in terms of a political platform where you lay out what it is you're going to do if you get elected. And Jesus does this in chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. So let's look at what the Scriptures say there. So he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue. This was his normal practice, to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And, and I'll be honest, like as you read this, And the idea that someone would give someone from out of town the opportunity to teach in the synagogue uh, that they might or might not know, they've heard some things about him, it's a pretty dangerous thing. Not frankly something that I would do. But that was fairly common. I mean, Greg's probably a little nervous even with me here preaching today. But they did. That was actually not all that out of the ordinary. Verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unscrolling the scroll, he unrolls it. He found the place where it was written. Now there's some debate as to whether or not this was like a, a, a demanded reading that they, they were reading page by page through Isaiah, or actually not page by page, I guess, paragraph by paragraph, because you're unrolling it, it's all in one page. Or if Jesus found it, I think, it probably points to finding it. But either way, it's there for a reason, and it's God-ordained. This is what he quotes. Isaiah 61, with a little bit of Isaiah 58 thrown in for good measure. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Think about that. It's a pretty bold claim. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Now, if you think about where Isaiah is writing this, Isaiah is writing this before the southern kingdom of Israel falls. He's writing for a people that aren't really yet alive that are going to read this when they go off into Babylon in the exile and they're going to read this and they're going to see, oh my goodness, everything Isaiah said is going to happen, happened. Our people were destroyed. And Isaiah also is going to talk about how God, on the other side of this destruction, on the other side of this judgment of sin, is going to intervene. God is going to return to his people. Yahweh is going to come back. He's going to reveal his glory. He's going to forgive our sins. He's going to send his spirit. And he's going to make all things new. And the Gentiles, they're going to come to Jerusalem, and they're going to worship the one true and living. That's a pretty great future for a beaten down slave people. But it had not happened yet. They came back to the land. They lived in the land. They were never really in charge except for a few hundred, hundred years or so. They've always been under the thumb of somebody else. One of the Gentiles is always just one step away from crushing them. So the forgiveness of sins and the healing of the land and particularly the folks streaming to Jerusalem to worship the one true living God, that's still a little bit beyond the grasp. And the pouring out of the Spirit on everybody, that certainly doesn't seem to have happened now. He stands up like the prophet and says, The Spirit of God is on me because He has anointed me. His baptism. He's anointed for the work of being a priest and a king. So what's he come to do? And notice the emphasis throughout this on his preaching. To preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Finally, we get to one of the actions, recovery of sight to the blind. To set free the oppressed. So those things we're going to see in the chapters that follow but ultimately then the last thing at the end of the list, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To say this is the year of deliverance. This is the year of jubilee. This is the time where God's favor is going to be poured out on His people. God is going to do all that we had hoped for. God is going to do great and mighty and amazing things. All that Isaiah said is going to be fulfilled. But then look what he says in the very next verse. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. This is the normal way. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then verse 21. He began by saying to them, today. Luke likes to use that word, today. Today. As you listen, in the sound of my voice, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now think about that for a second. They're in backwater Nazareth, a town of maybe 400 people or so. It's grown today because of tourism, because of, well, Jesus. This is nowhere. This is a place where nobody good comes from. Think about even in the Gospel of John, like one of the followers of Jesus says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Like this is a nowhere town. This, there... You live here, you die here, there's nothing here. And he says, right here in this place, this scripture has been fulfilled. The whole world has changed because I just stood up and spoke to you in front of this synagogue. And they're going to say, what in the world is going on? We need to unpack this. Why is it that Jesus is saying here that he's come to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And here is this temptation. We're either going to sort of fall into the ditch of saying this is all about sort of internal spiritual change. He's going to forgive sin. He's going to release those who are captive to sin. He's going to do this thing in us, inside of us, or the other ditch is to say all that we need to be about is helping meet these physical needs of people and not really worried about proclaiming the kingship of Jesus. Those are kind of the ditches that folks fall into when they read this passage. But really, it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. That Jesus has come to do this mighty, amazing work that is going to transform the physical, it's going to transform the spiritual, it's going to transform the entirety of creation. That's why Paul in Colossians is going to say that what Christ has accomplished in his death and resurrection is going to reconcile all things. It, it, that's not exaggeration. He's going to reconcile everything that God has made in his creation to the Creator. So that's going to change the physical world, it's going to change the spiritual, it's going to change everything. And here we see again Isaiah as the the foundation and the starting point for all that we see here at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. If you think back throughout these first three, four chapters, Isaiah has prophecies of hope and comfort that would have been read in Babylon have been seen as the foundation for all that's been said about who this baby is going to be, what this baby is going to do, even when he goes to the temple and he is held and taken from his mom and dad, and told that this will be the one for the falling and rising of many in Israel. He's going to bring hope and restoration to Israel. All that is said there is grounded in Isaiah. And now Jesus himself says, everything that Isaiah has said, I have come to do. I am the Messiah. I am the King. I am the suffering servant. And because I am here, the world has changed and it will never be the same. You see, at the heart of this, when he says, I've come to preach good news, he's saying that the gospel is not just about how an individual person is converted and brought from death to life. It's not about you It's not about me. And that's what we so often want to make the gospel into is this sort of personal plan of salvation. The gospel is the proclamation of the kingship of Jesus. The plan of salvation is how an individual person gets brought into that kingdom reign. Because here is the problem. If there's a king who has a kingdom and we've rebelled against that king, that means we're in trouble. We're under his wrath. We're defeated. We're in big trouble. But there is a way into this king's family, not just under his reign, but into his family. And that way into his family is through repentance and faith in Jesus. But when you're coming to him, when you're submitting to him, it's not just submitting this spiritual inner reality. It's submitting your whole self to a king. Jesus is certainly called us friends, but he ain't our buddy. He is the king of Of the universe and coming into his family means I am following him as my king. That's kind of hard for us. We like to elect our leaders, and if they're, you know, they don't do what they say, we boot them out. Kings don't have elections, kings take over, and their taking over is complete. Well, look at the response of the folk in verse 22. So the third headline that we might see is, isn't this Joseph's boy? This would be the op-ed piece. The complainer, maybe. Verse 22, they were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. They were excited about the words that are coming out of his mouth. God's reign, God's kingdom. Yeah. But, they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, there's something for Luke's readers to say. Well, no, actually, no. It's not. This is the son of God. He was conceived in a woman who was a virgin both before and after he was conceived. He ain't Joseph's boy. He lived in Joseph's house. He submitted to Joseph, but he's not Joseph's son. So it starts off, and you can imagine how this would be. He's from our town. The king is from here. This is great. We like to hear this positive news of God's intervention to fix things. This is great. And they were marveling at his gracious words. And Jesus is appealing to their hopes about the future reign of God. They are excited. Like, they can get on that boat. Like, I'm going to get on the boat. I'm going to get on the train of kingdom and power and greatness and... Let's go! But as it unfolds, it seems like they begin to figure out that when Jesus starts talking about God's reign, and he's talking about these poor folk, and the captive folk, and the blind folk, and the oppressed folk, that's not exactly the kind of power that they were hoping for. And let's just be honest, we're kind of the same way. We we get excited about the things of God and about we talk about God's kingship, but when it, the rubber meets the road and it's time to follow and submit, we don't always like where he wants us to go. And so they begin to ask, isn't this the son of Joseph? Like we're really proud that he's from our town, but he's just the boy of that guy that Worked on stone and construction like he's, like he's nobody. Luke's emphasizing that the Davidic line has now seen the fulfillment of the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. But the folks in Nazareth, they're like, this is, this is ridiculous. Like, who does he think he is? He's just Joseph's boy. Like, it's really cool that he's from our hometown. He hadn't been here in a while, and he's here to preach. But, I mean, he's just that kid. I mean, it just reminds us that Jesus' early life was pretty normal. You know, the little ladies didn't come up and pinch him on the face and say, man, you're going to make a great Messiah one of these days. And so the tables kind of turn. So look in verse 23. I guess this could be the second op-ed. What about Nazareth? What about us? What are we going to get? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Doctor, heal yourself. This reminds us that it's pretty likely that Jesus has done miracles, healing miracles before he got here, but he's not done any here yet. Well, we've heard took place in Capernaum, you know, down the road, those other folks. Why don't you do them here? Like, put your money where your mouth is. Show us what you got. You know, this is where in Matthew and Mark we're told that Jesus wouldn't do miracles there because of this. He could have. And it's kind of ironic in a way. Mark says, yeah, he did a few things, but not the cool stuff like he did down the road. But he wouldn't because of their lack of faith. So, verse 24. He also said, Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So I think as we read this part where Jesus kind of comes back at them and confronts them and and really even calls out what they're thinking in their hearts, which he was prone to do, he says, I bet you're thinking, doctor, why don't you heal folks from your hometown? Like he's, he's kind of picking a fight with them. He knows what's in their heart. He's calling it out. Let's just get it all out in the open. Let's talk it through. This is the opposite of a politician. A politician's politician is going to pat you on the back and tell you what you want to hear, even if it's not the truth. Jesus is not a politician. There's only so far that our analogy goes. He is a prophet. And as one commentator on this passage says, Prophets do not preach to those who already agree with them, and do not deal in flattery and soft soap to win high ratings. They declare what God will do. It's like this this morning as I was listening to the Scriptures being read, how uh, the king was told, uh, well, you can, you can send word to Micaiah. He's a prophet of God. He's not like one of your bought and paid for prophets. We'll send to, to him to hear if there's a word from the Lord. And he says, I don't want, I know, I hate him. He always says things I don't like to hear. That's what prophets do. Now, sometimes prophets can be disagreeable or people who claim to be prophets can be disagreeable and not be speaking for God. Just because you're disagreeable doesn't mean you're a prophet. I'll let that sink in. (laughs) That might fall too close for many of us. Being disagreeable is not a sign of a prophet necessarily, but a true prophet of God Is going to speak what God says and not what's going to make him popular. that's what Jesus does. And this is how the quote goes on. He says, they speak the truth that people do not want to hear. This rubs against the grain of a culture that treats religion as a consumer item. You know, folks say, well, you know, we've made the church into some kind of consumer thing. We're trying to draw people in to their desires and needs. Guess what? That's not something that was going on in the first century in Palestine. It's going on today. People want what they want for themselves. But what we want for ourselves is not necessarily what we need. And that's why prophets can expect to not be very well liked in their hometown. He's proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor, but it's not the favor they want. He's bringing the acceptable year of the Lord, but he's not acceptable to them. And that's a problem. And then he not just confronts them, he kind of punches them in the gut. Like he could have chosen from out the entire Old Testament examples of the work of prophets. And what does he do? He picks the widow of Zarephath in Sidon, and Naaman, the Syrian, as examples of God's demonstration of his power. The Sidonian widow who trusts in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when she's down to her last bit of flour and her last bit of oil, and Elijah says, go make me bread first, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob says, you're never going to run out. And then her boy dies. And Elijah, in the power of the Lord, raises him back to life again. In Sidon. And if you think about it, there's an irony here. Because where does the miracle happen? Does it happen in the northern kingdom where Ahab and Jezebel are? Nope. By the way, Jezebel's from Sidon. He goes into the heart of the belly of Baal worship where she's from and God does a miracle to a woman who believes, this former Baal worshiping woman who believes the prophet of God, she gets the blessing of God when the people who were supposed to be worshiping the one true and living God alone are worshiping her gods. Well, the ones she used to worship. And then Naaman, this wealthy Gentile military leader who comes down because, think about it, he hears about Elisha from a conquered slave girl and he goes down to this conquered people and he hears from Elisha you go wash in the Jordan River you do not want to do it because it's dirty it's not really impressive but doing it his own way is not going to work it didn't work so he comes back humbled he does what the prophet says and he's healed not somebody in Israel a Gentile again Like this is like you're poking the bear here Jesus not Nazareth, not Galilee, not Jews, Gentiles. Think about that for a second. Who's Luke's audience? Ah, oh, Gentiles. He's saying here that the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish is not just for the Jews; it's for you, any and all who will repent and believe. So, here are two points of application. Jesus of Nazareth, the boy in his hometown, exploded first century Jewish models for how God would launch his kingdom reign. They had a picture. God's going to come. We're going to have God on our side. We're going to go into battle. And we're going to slice and we're going to dice the Romans this time. And we're going to be in power. And they're going to come and we've been bowing to them, they're going to bow to us. But here's the thing. Rather than crushing the people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to save Israel alone, Jesus is going to accomplish God's goal of bringing the kingdom by allowing the powers of the world to crush Him. To save people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You see, the, the conventional wisdom is that if we're going to get what we want, have the place in society that we want, we got to take it. we got to take it with God's help, and we're going to be in charge and we're going to boss everybody around. But Jesus' way doesn't come from out of the world, like he tells Pilate in the Gospel of John. His kingdom is coming on the earth and it's not going to be stopped, but it's not going to come by your methods, old Pilate. And you can kill me, but that just means I win. But not only does Jesus explode the vision, the model of first century folk, Jesus explodes 21st century models for who he is because he extends an offer of salvation to the outcast and oppressed and to the wealthy and the privileged and everyone in between. The oppressed, the beaten down, the captive of Nazareth, and the wealthy of Theophilus' family and friends, there is a place for folks from every group in the kingdom of God. But here's the key thing. Anybody who comes into the kingdom doesn't get to stay the same as they were before they got there. There is no privilege from being in the outcast and oppressed, and there is no privilege from having wealth. Everyone who comes to Jesus comes just as they are, but they don't get to stay the way they are because they've submitted to a king. So let's look at the coalition that Jesus is building. The poor, the captive, the blind. They're not going to be very helpful in a battle, are they? The oppressed. And then he gives those two examples. The widow of Zarephath, Naaman the soldier. This is a ragtag coalition, right? This This is not a coalition of the willing or the unwilling. This is a coalition of the who in the world would pick them. They have no ability in themselves to stay together in unity. How in the world is this group, poor, captive, blind, oppressed, widows, rich soldiers, how are they going to be brought together into one family and live in harmony? And here's the thing, they can't. Left to their own devices, it's never going to happen. How's it going to happen? It happens when they live as Jubilee people, filled with the Spirit of God. People who are living because Jesus has died and been raised from the dead, who have life in Christ and not life in themselves. They have life in the Spirit and they are walking in the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, living under the banner of the kingship of Jesus and not any other banner that we can think of. Not under a political banner, not under an ethnic banner, not under a a gender banner, under the banner of a king. The only thing that defines us in any ultimate sense is that we are adopted sons and daughters of Jesus the Lord. The Gospel of Luke says that Jesus has come to seek and to save and to transform the lost wherever they can be So if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, Luke is saying today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to find real, lasting, eternal, meaningful life under the authority of the only king who will shape you into who you need to be. Jesus says... That's happened today in Nazareth, and it will happen every day until I return. And so this coalition will live under the banner of Jesus. And they will live as Jubilee people. And that is a, that is a very hard concept for us to, to, to fathom. But if you go to Leviticus and you read what it's describing, it's talking about how this family, Israel is not a nation first and foremost. It is a family. And they are brothers and sisters under the lordship of Yahweh. And when they live together in this land and they trust, see, this is, it all is, has as its foundation one thing, faith that God provides what he says he's going to provide. So you can lend to your brother, you can lend to your sister when they are in need, and you can lend to them and not ask for any kind of interest, which is very countercultural and frankly counterhuman. What am I going to get out of it? Well, I'm not going to get anything out of it, but the benefit of helping my neighbor. And I'm going to give to them, and I'm going to give to them freely because I believe and I know that God is going to provide for my need. Because I trust that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I can give to them because I know the year of Jubilee is coming up. I can give to them and I know that the Jubilee is coming and the cancel of debt is happening and I'm not going to get anything. But I give anyway because I know that God provides. I mean, just think about for just a minute what happens in the book of Acts. When Jesus dies in his race and his people receive his spirit, and the people are converted at Pentecost, and they're walking in the power of the spirit, and they're seeing great and mighty things done, what does Luke say in chapter 2, verse 42 to 47? And in chapter 4, he says, And there was no one who had need. That is the vision of Jubilee. Because when people had problems, they would go and sell their possessions. They would give away because they trusted and knew that God was their provider. God was all they needed. And there was no one who had need because they had faith in the power and the sovereignty of God. And if you think about it this way, think about how Jesus even in the prayer that he teaches his followers, how he uses debt and sin language so closely together. If people who really grasp the fact that their debt of sin has been canceled in the death and resurrection of Jesus, how in the world can they hold a debt of sin against them or a debt of money against someone who's been bought with the blood of Jesus? That's how we live together. That's how we make a difference. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. When we live like that, when we live together as a church in this kind of sacrificial community where people matter more than possessions, where the restoration of a sinner is more important than my hurt feelings, it transforms us and it transforms everything that we come into contact with. You see, spirit-empowered people will never say that some people are more equal than others, they will welcome sinners into their orbit. They will love them to the truth. They will exhort them to spirit-driven transformation that makes them holy and allows them to become the image bearers that God has made them to be. So my exhortation to you, this final exhortation, is to live as this jubilee community. That's who you are. That's who you've been made to be in Christ, to live as this jubilee community where it will transform all of this place around you. Because you look different. If people matter to you more than possessions, you're going to look strange in this community. If you're willing to forgive where you've been wronged, even if it was years ago and even if it was terrible, it's going to stand out and it's going to show the glory of Jesus for what it really is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to this time of invitation, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would... By your Spirit, convict us of where we are considering possessions more important than people, where we are holding on to bitterness and anger over wrongs done days, hours, or even years ago that are stunting our ability to follow you, that are making us look just like the lost world, Lord, I pray that you would convict us, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would restore relationships. Lord, if there's one here today that does not know Jesus Christ, I pray that you would call them to yourself, that they would see that the the things that they're longing for, the, the, the flourishing life that they desire, is only going to be found in submission to you as king is only going to be found in the transforming work that your Spirit will do if they repent and believe in Jesus for salvation. Lord, I pray that you would do your work, that you would act in a mighty way, and that you would transform this church community so that it will be able, in the power of the Spirit, to transform the rest of this small community and, and Todd County and, and beyond. Because their light shines because it is the light of the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.